great week. I've appreciated your faithfulness. I know as we were driving here tonight, in the rainy night, it just seemed like you could have used a lot of excuses tonight to stay home. Uh, last night, nobody's going to notice. He'll be long gone. And, so, <laughs> and I appreciate your fighting that urge to just relax tonight at home. And uh, trust will be a blessing to you through, as we look into God's Word. And let me just thank everybody for the part you played in, the, in our services, the choir, the music, everyone that had a part, the time, those that have met before for prayer. Appreciate so much your faithfulness. I, I know that makes a tremendous difference in every service this week. And appreciate the pastor inviting me, in spite of all the things he says about me, in spite of the fact that I should have failed him in those classes years ago. <clears throat> Still keeps inviting me back, and I... Appreciate that. It was a real honor last Mother's Day to be here as part of the 35th anniversary of your pastor's ministry. That was a special day as we looked back and reflected upon his ordination and his call into the ministry. So pray for us. I'll be leaving tomorrow morning up to Owensboro, Kentucky to spend a day with my family there, daughters, son-in-law, grandson, wife, and... Uh, Got some special things planned for Saturday. He's asked me to speak on Sunday, and then after Sunday, we'll be headed back to Pensacola, probably getting there maybe a little bit before you arrive, just to make sure check things out. By the way, I would like to know who got the jelly bean Krispy Kreme donuts. That's, I've never seen those before, but I already know they'd be great, so if you are here tonight. You need to hit the altar <laughs> and let me know where you find them, because I've already checked on Amazon, <laughs> but they look great. I don't know who ordered those, is that special order that went in, or whatever, but Krispy Kreme Jelly Bellies, I mean, wow, you can't, that's hard to be, that combination right there. Anyway, it's been a blessing, thank you, Pastor, for the invitation, and we look forward to getting back here again real soon. Take your Bibles tonight and turn with me to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. Usually about this time of the year as we approach the Easter season, there are things that I've tried to make kind of tradition in my life. I love to sometime in the next two weeks read every one of the four accounts of the events that we call the Passion Week, the events surrounding the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. So with that in mind, I thought it would be appropriate in my last message to you tonight to look at a few of the things that perhaps we do not necessarily concentrate on when we look at the Easter story. Another thing I like to do is to read as much as I can that, that after I look into God's Word, to read what others have said and how the resurrection of Christ was used as a key doctrine it is the most documented miracle of all human history. And the proof for the resurrection is simply impeccable. It is amazing those that have tried to deny it. Josh McDowell, for one, I mentioned him last night. He will give you his testimony in the first of his books, The Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And one of the chapters, he gives his personal testimony, how he was an agnostic 
did not believe in the Lord, did not believe in Christ, and yet he did a study on the resurrection and came away with the reality that you simply could not argue against it. Same thing happened to Viggo Olson, the one who was, went under ABWE years ago as a missionary to Bangladesh and wrote the book Doctar. He also was an agnostic, but came face to face with the proofs of the resurrection of Christ, and he simply could not debate the facts presented in the Word of God. Another man by the name of Frank Morrison. You should get a copy of his little book. Now, it's small. It's a little paperback book, but it's still in print. Just go to Amazon and plug in uh, Frank Morrison. It's with one R, I believe. Uh, and his book is entitled, Who Moved the Stone? It's a question. Who moved the stone? And a fascinating little study. He was a journalist. And he actually, in the very first chapter of that book, he sets out to explain how his writing was headed in one direction. He felt that it would be pretty easy to reject the events surrounding the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, so he starts to write one book to prove conclusively that it was all a bunch of fables. Well, the title of that first chapter is The Book That Refused to Be Written. And he tells how he came to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and his desire to reject everything, he realized the arguments are too powerful. The resurrection proof is simply too demanding. And he came to know Christ as Savior, and instead of writing one book, rejecting it all, he wrote the book that you can now read, and it's small enough that you could read it probably in one sitting. And he brings up a couple ideas that I want to present to you tonight. Uh, I just love to just immerse my reading, my study of the Word of God and what others have said about it, and of course the Bible first and then kind of allow others to give some insights that perhaps I did not see. And I'd love to do that over these next three weeks as we prepare for Easter. Well, in Mark 14, I'm going to just read the first two verses. I'll then make a comment. I'll see my first point, and then we'll read a few more verses later and continue on. I thought about entitling this message, The Event That Changed History, and I suppose that would be a great title. We could certainly be talking about the resurrection, but in the story of the greatest event of human history, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, there are some many stories that are going on and intertwined with the major account of the death of Christ. So follow along, I'll read just two verses to start with, Mark 14 and verses 1 and 2. After two days was the feast of the Passover and of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him, that's Christ, by craft, and put him to death. But they said, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar of the people. All right, folks, that's it. Might as well close up our Bibles and go home. We know that this group, oftentimes referred to by chief priests, elders, sometimes chief priests, elders, and scribes, represent what we now know as the Sanhedrin, a Jewish body of law. They would be the ones that would eventually try Christ in the middle of the night so they could get him to Pilate early the next morning. But as we 
look at to these verse, two verses, we find out my first point is simply there is a spirit of resignation. These individuals who are bent on getting Christ crucified, having him killed, have already resigned themselves that although it may happen sometime in the future, it will not happen this week. Why? Well, they tell us why. Not just here, but as you compare the four gospel accounts, you'll find that this idea comes up over and over again. The initial thought was, although he deserves to die, and we're going to try to do our part to make sure it happens, we certainly cannot do it during the Passover. We certainly cannot do it during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It may happen someday, but not this week. Why? Because there might be an uproar of the people. It doesn't take much reading of the gospel accounts before you realize that the common person loves the Lord. As he's traveled around Judea and Galilee and Perea, as he has ministered to literally thousands of people, he's preached the gospel, he's told about himself and what he will accomplish at Jerusalem, he uh, has healed the sick, the blind, the deaf, the lame, and the fact is, folks, that the common person loved him. And so it is crystal clear to any Sanhedrin member of average intelligence that although we might be able to pull this off sometime in the future, it will not happen during the Passover. He's too popular. Remember that during the Passover that there will be Jews coming from all over the known world descending upon Jerusalem. They will come for this very special Jewish holiday. If they're coming too far that they cannot bring sacrificial animals, that's what the money changers are for in the temple. They'll be glad to change their money. They'll be glad to make sure an animal is available for their own personal sacrifice, and so on. Well, the Sanhedrin are at least smart enough to realize it's not going to work. So then I'm very puzzled. Well, then how is it that they are guaranteeing in these first two verses that it will not happen, that all of a sudden something happened. Something changed. They all of a sudden, as we'll get into the story a little bit later, turn 180 degrees and realize that the very thing they thought they could not do during Passover is the very thing that perhaps could actually take place. There's a lot going on behind the scenes. There's a lot of things that have to be in place in order for Christ, after his last supper, going to the Garden of Gethsemane, praying there, asking his apostles, the disciples, to pray with him three different occasions. The night is getting later and later and later. It is sometimes suggested that it could be as close as midnight by the time Judas finally shows up. A lot of things have to take place. The Sanhedrin, Caiaphas, the high priest, he knows full well that we could carry on a, a, a kangaroo cord in the middle of the night, which, by the way, broke all kinds of Jewish law, but we can somehow get this done. But even if we do our part and get him accused and convicted of a variety of crimes, if we bring in these false witnesses and get them to give their speeches Problem is, we can do all that, but if Pilate does not give his agreement to this, the next morning, 
And we got to do all of that with the common person loving him and probably would absolutely rebel against anything we try to do unless we do it in the middle of the night when they're all asleep. Well, it is Frank Morrison in his little book that suggests that something has to happen in the middle of the night between Caiaphas, the high priest, and Pilate, the one and only one who can give the permission for Christ to be executed. He suggests that a meeting took place. It's not recorded for us in Scripture, so we have to just kind of imagine what might have happened. But there is a little verse tucked away in Matthew chapter 27, in verses 17 to 19, if you want to turn there for just a minute, keep your place, and Mark 14 will come back. But in the account we have, in fact, the only place in all of Scripture that we have this account is Matthew 27 and verse 17. Now, this is then the next day after the Sanhedrin trial when they appear before Pilate with Christ and the man that he be crucified. And we have Matthew 27, 17. Therefore, when they were gathered together, Pilate said unto them, Whom will ye that I release unto you, Barabbas or Jesus, which is called Christ? For he, that's Pilate, knew that for envy they had delivered him. And when he was set down on the judgment seat, his wife sent unto him, saying, Have thou nothing to do with that just man? For I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. One little verse about Pilate's wife tucked in the Bible, one place, Matthew. Why did God include that? Well, Frank Morrison suggests the answer. He says that if Caiaphas was willing to try to organize what everything had to be done through the night, if he realized that he had to have Pilate on his side when they get there the next morning, so they could have Jesus Christ on the cross by 9 a.m., so that when the village, that is the city of old Jerusalem, when it finally wakes up, they've gone to bed with Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, they wake up with Christ on the cross, and they simply have no time to rebel. He said, surely Caiaphas was smart enough to realize he's got to get all his ducks in a row. The suggestion is made that he makes the trip. By the way, it's only two blocks. One time I was trying to show a class that the city of Jerusalem wasn't that big and all the events that took place this night were taking place in a very small area. In fact, I made up a transparency of the city of old Jerusalem and I put it over the campus of Pensacola Christian College map and it exactly fit. If you have been to Pensacola Christian, if you know the typical size of the main campus, that's the size of old Jerusalem. Not that big. So going from Herod to Pilate and Pilate to Herod and all of this can happen within just a few blocks of each other. It's not, sometimes when we think of the city of Jerusalem, we picture New York City. That's not it at all. It was approximately one square mile in area at the time Christ walked Jerusalem. So anyway, what Frank Morrison suggests, and you can take this or leave it, Scripture doesn't tell us, so we have to kind of just imagine what might happen. But it's based on that dream that Pilate's wife has. He says that probably if Caiaphas is smart enough, he would first of all go to Pilate and say, okay, we've got this individual, he's guilty of some crimes, but as Jewish people, as a Sanhedrin, we are not allowed to condemn someone to death. Pilate, we are asking you, please, could you be at the Tower of Antonia tomorrow morning, first thing, we'll have him ready, we'll have him there, 
we're going to ask you to pass the sentence on him so he can be on the cross as soon as possible. So the idea is that Caiaphas goes to the house where Pilate is staying and simply has a discussion and simply asks if he would be willing to go through this process. Now, whether Pilate's wife was in on that discussion or simply hearing everything from another room, like any good, dutiful wife should do, she hears something about this man called Christ. And she goes to bed that night with that on her mind. And like so many of us, even like the dream I described to you, when you have something going on during the day that makes that kind of impression, you're thinking about it before you go to sleep. Perhaps that's where the dream came from. I don't know. I was just kind of conjecturing here. But it kind of makes sense that Caiaphas would really probably want to make sure all of this will fall into place before he even starts the process. Because if he can't finish it, why start it? So the idea, however, is the Sanhedrin at this point in verse 2 has simply resigned themselves to the fact it cannot happen this week. Christ is too popular. People love him. He went through the city of Jerusalem on the donkey. They laid down the palm branches on Sunday, and they shouted at the top of their voice, Hosanna to the King of Israel. Hosanna to him that comes in the name of the Lord. Now, I know that there are some that say or believe that the crowd that shouted Hosanna on Sunday was the same crowd that shouted crucify him a few days later. I don't think so. I believe that the crowd that shouted crucified him was a crowd that was, in a sense, created and motivated and persuaded by the Sanhedrin to do everything they said. I think the common person, who oftentimes tends to be the silent person, said nothing. If they even would have known all that happened before 9 o'clock the next morning, while most are sleeping, Everyone is busy with the Sanhedrin as Christ appears before them. The witnesses gave their false testimony. He is condemned to death and arrives at Pilate's Hall that very next morning. So I guess the question I have that makes for this whole study, to me, interesting is what changed? Because I see in every one of the four Gospels the same attitude of the Sanhedrin. Well, yeah, we want to get him. We want to crucify him. We want to kill him. We don't like what he says, but not this week. So how in the world did everything change? The attitude of the Sanhedrin were on one hand, they're willing to say, no, we can't do it now. And all of a sudden, things totally change. And they say, you know what? It can happen. If all the pieces fit together, we can have him crucified during the height of the Jewish Passover, which, of course, you know, God is the one by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God that God is working all this out. But for me, it's kind of enjoyable at times to kind of see the human element that God has put in place to bring about his will. So what happens? What's the event that changes everything? Well, I hope I've got you on the edge of your seat. We're going to continue reading. What in the world happened that caused a group of people, very intelligent Jewish elders, scribes, chief priests, these were the top of the line. These were the top 10% of their class type of men. So we're not talking about uh, people that are not intelligent. They're smart enough to realize 
we've got to get this thing all figured out before we take step one. If we can't take it from step one to step ten, then we, why should we even start with step one? All right, verse three. And being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment, the spikenard very precious, and she brake the box and poured it on his head. And there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, Why was this waste of the ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and had been given to the poor. And they murmured against her. And Jesus said, Let her alone. Why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me. For ye have the poor with you always. And whensoever ye will, ye may do them good. But me ye have not always. She hath done what she could. She has come aforehand to anoint my body to the bearing. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. I love this part of the story, Mary of Bethany. When you live in a home like I do with three daughters and a wife, you enjoy sharing with them stories from God's Word, accounts from God's Word that show how special each and every woman is, as well as each and every man. Mary of Bethany. We don't see her that often in the New Testament. Every time we see her, where do we find her? We see her at the feet of the Lord. Mary of Bethany does something here that probably doesn't seem that special. I mean, it's, but yet it's found in, the, in three out of the four Gospels and alluded to in the fourth. Here she is, a woman. Now, she was not ever going to preach a message. There is no record that she would ever teach a class. But she took this sacrifice. She made this sacrifice. Alabaster box of ointment. Some have suggested it looks more like a, a small vase with a long, skinny neck. It's sealed somewhere. So when they talk about breaking the box, it probably means breaking the seal so that the ointment could be poured forth. She uses her hair. A woman's glory. Now, having, again, having a wife and three daughters, this would be a sacrifice in itself. Nothing against the Lord, but when he walks the streets of the city in those days, they're dusty, dirty streets. I mean, that's why the custom of foot washing was so special. So, she's taking her hair, mixing it with the ointment, and using it to wash his feet. According to John's gospel, John 12, verse 3, gives us that part of the story. Again, for my daughters, that would be quite the sacrifice. To mix the hair with an ointment that will probably be mixed with dust and dirt, probably clogged with who knows what, and yet using your own hair. And I know one preacher really wanted to make a point here, and he says that just proves she had to have long hair. Uh, surely she, uh, Mary of Bethany did not buff his feet. She had to simply take it and wipe his feet. It reminds me of one evangelist, Tom Williams, years ago, that was trying to make a point that he just happened to like his wife with long hair. And his point was, as he spoke on this subject, that surely uh, we all need to, you know, he said, like what I like to do when I get home in the evening is take my wife in my arms and run my fingers through her long hair 
and say, oh, my darling, oh, my darling, oh, my darling. So for some of you men out there, you're going to take your wife in your arms tonight. You're going to say, oh, my, oh, my, oh, my. Or others of you out there, you'll say, oh, oh, oh. Well, I guess he made his point. I really don't think you can get that much here out of the Scripture, but the point is that she made a sacrifice. Her hair, her cleanliness, I'm sure, again, was involved because, you know, it's just not the best of things to do. The ointment, again, mixed with dirt, and yet she makes a sacrifice. Some have estimated that that ointment would be a year's wages. I have no reason to doubt that. It's just a wonderful sacrificial gift. But the amazing thing about this story, of course, is her sacrifice, but the amazing thing is that she actually coming from the Lord himself, has just performed an act that is a reminder that she came beforehand and anointed my body for burial. Now, I have to admit, for a long time, I thought, well, the Lord's just kind of being nice, and what he did is he took her wonderful act of sacrifice, and he kind of had to twist it and turn it to make it come out real spiritual because she probably had no clue what she was doing. That was my fault. That's not what the Scripture teaches. She knew exactly what she was doing. She came before to anoint him for his burial. She knew he would die. She knew he would be buried. She knew he would rise again. Now, last night I described to you a group of disciples who didn't have a clue. Tonight I present to you the one person who did have it all figured out. There may have been others, but the only one that is really recorded for us that clearly understood what was about to happen is Mary of Bethany. You say, well, how, and I, I can see where she anointed his body for the burial, but where did you get the idea that she believed in the resurrection? Very simply, she is significant by her absence on Easter Sunday morning. Check it out. Was Mary of Bethany one of the women at the tomb? She was not. Why? Why should she be there? She knew it would be pointless. She knew that that meant her Savior was coming out of that tomb on Sunday morning, Easter sunrise. She knew that was going to happen. Why in the world would she waste her time being somewhere where he would not be? Well, how could that be? How could this woman... Know something that Simon Peter and John and Andrew, how could this one woman know something that these other men, these men were simply clueless? How could it be? Two words. She listened. While Peter is running his mouth about making tabernacles on the top of the Mount of Transfiguration, Mary of Bethany is listening. When James and John are busy trying to figure out who's going to sit on the right hand and who's going to sit on the right hand in his glory, Mary of Bethany is listening. When Lazarus comes out of that grave, her brother, while all is going on and people are trying to figure out what in the world is happening and why in the world Jesus would weep, Mary is listening. 
Every time we see Mary of Bethany, she's listening exactly, intently, carefully to the words of the Savior. And you know enough about the Scripture. You've read the accounts. It's not like the Lord kept it a secret. How many times did He announce very clearly exactly what was going to happen? And yet they missed it every time. That is, the disciples, the apostles, missed it every time. But one woman was listening. She was paying attention. And she knew exactly what was going to happen that next, that next week. She knew what would happen. She comes to him. She anoints his body for the burial and does not show up on Easter Sunday because he will not be there. So we saw the spirit of resignation in the Sanhedrin. For Mary, we see the spirit of reverence. The spirit of reverence. Simply sitting at his feet and listening to everything he had to say. Wow, if we could have that attitude, if we could have that spirit, we all love to talk, I know, but if we could spend more time listening in God's Word, paying attention to what He has to say, it is amazing how He could speak to each of us. And then the wonderful proclamation is made by the Lord Himself, leave her alone, she hath done what she could. She hath done what she could. So we got the spirit of resignation by the Sanhedrin. We got the spirit of reverence by Mary of Bethany. But it still does not fully answer the question, what changed? Well, it was in that story. And I think if you're paying attention, there's something in the middle of the story of Mary of Bethany. What happened? Some disciples start complaining. And according to the Gospel of John, one in particular... Who was it? Judas. Judas, the one who holds the bag, the one who's in charge of the finances. He doesn't like this idea of wasting a year's wages of perfume or ointment on the feet of Christ. And so in Mark's gospel, we do not have him named. John's gospel certainly does name him specifically as one that complains. And so that brings me to the third spirit that I find here. We've seen the spirit of resignation for the Sanhedrin. They're not going to carry this thing through this week. But then we have the count, the spirit of reverence, and Mary of Bethany. So I guess in a sense we could say the reason why the story of Mary of Bethany is going to be remembered throughout all history, and every time the gospel is presented is yes, it's a wonderful attitude of reverence, it's a wonderful spirit of sacrifice, but in the middle of this thing, Judas really reveals himself for what he really is. And he's corrected publicly by the Lord, and by the way, rightfully so. You complain publicly, you have a right to be corrected publicly. And that's exactly what happens. Because then we get to verses 10 and 11. And Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went unto the chief priests to betray him unto them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought how he might conveniently betray him. Now everything changes. All of a sudden, that Sanhedrin that was pretty well convinced that this is not the time this is not the place. The people love him. It won't happen. Not now. Perhaps not for a long time. Now all of a sudden, Judas hands them a gift. 
By the way, the other gospel accounts are even more clear in indicating that it was then that Judas starts his plan. Now, I wondered for years, how long has Judas been plotting the betrayal of Christ? I believe the answer is he did not plan the betrayal of Christ ever until he is publicly, in his eyes, humiliated. And then, like so many others, others of us, even well-meaning believers, those that know and name the name of Christ, something gets us wound up, and we can't let it go. And Matthew says, then... Once the Lord says this is a memorial for her, then one of the twelve called Judas went unto the chief priest. Luke 22, 3 is even more specific. Then entered Satan into Judas. When did Satan enter into Judas? At the moment Judas opens his heart to bitterness and the attitude, the spirit of revenge. And now everything changes. The Sanhedrin that's pretty well resigned themselves that this is not the place, this is not the time, Passover will not happen, not now. And yet then Mary of Bethany performs her simple act of sacrifice and Judas can't take it any longer. He complains about this waste of the money. I mean, it sounds like an admirable concern. I mean, after all, are you just going to let this kind of money be wasted when it can be used and actually given to the poor? Now, all of a sudden, we see the spirit of revenge. Folks, if you ever get to the place where you open your heart to bitterness, you're opening your heart to the influence of Satan. And that's exactly what happens. And now he goes to the Sanhedrin and he gives them words that changes everything. Basically, in so many words, Judas is saying this is the time, this is the place, it can be done, and I'm going to help you get it done. I suppose if we took the time tonight, we could all go around this room and share with each other times in our lives where we think that someone did us wrong. Maybe we were publicly corrected for something and that person had every right to correct us, but there's just something about being that, that done that just, just gets to us. And yet if we learn anything from the lesson of Judas, once you allow bitterness to creep in, there is no end. You've got to come to the place where you realize you need to be just as forgiving as the Lord is forgiving of you. If a Cory Ten Boom during World War II can forgive the soldiers that were responsible for taking the life of her sister and other friends and family members, then I think we could have the same spirit of forgiveness. I had the privilege a few years ago this evening of meeting Eva Kaur. Eva Kaur had a little museum in Terre Haute, Indiana. We just accidentally... Stopped there one night. I mean, accident. We just were tired of driving, so I just decided to stop in a nowhere town, Terre Haute, Indiana. We thought, well, we got a few hours to kill. Let's see what's around. And we found this little, little museum that was a remodeled church where 
Eva Kaur had all over the building explanations and pictures and so on of the Holocaust. Eva Kaur was 12, 13 years of age when she was taken off with her sister to Auschwitz. When they arrived, the fact that they were twins made them special because Dr. Mengele was experimenting on twins. One of the children, one of the twins would be kind of the base. That would be the standard by which all the experiments and the other one would be measured. Eva was the one that got the shots with the bacteria and left to see how long she could live. On one occasion, she said, Dr. Mengele looked over her after her injection and laughed and said, this woman can't, this girl won't live much more than two days. She said when she heard that, she said, I'm going to show him. I'm going to do everything in my power to stay alive because she said, I knew that if I died, there would be no purpose for my sister living so that in my hands was not just my life, but her life as well. So we listened for over two hours as this woman just pours out her heart explaining everything that happened. And there's not a one of us in our little mini tour group of about a dozen people with a dry eye by the time she gets done. I suppose especially when she shows us the number in her forearm that was her tattooed number that she's worn all her life since the Holocaust. When the Russians were able to go in and release those in the camp, they made a documentary. If you've ever seen the documentary when the, the prisoners are first coming out, there's two little girls that are heading up the parade. It's Eva, Cor, and her sister as they're coming out, released, free, for the first time in months. Well, as I sat there listening to her, she wanted to make sure that before she finished, now, as far as I know, she is not a believer, but she closed by making sure we understood that she had to come to the place in her life where she was willing to forgive Dr. Dr. Mengele and every other one of the soldiers. She's written a book, and you can go on Amazon, Forgiving Dr. Mangala by Eva Kaur, and you can read the account yourself. It just reminds me that, folks, it's just not worth holding on to something. Judas changes the course of history with his bitterness because he somehow can't take some correction, and all of a sudden he's looking at Christ, and in so many words he's saying, I'll show you. You'll rue the day you corrected me. And the rest is history. As he goes to the Sanhedrin, makes his offer, they accept it. And in the middle of the night, Judas shows up, betrays the Lord, takes him to the Sanhedrin. There he is accused and convicted of a crime. And by 9 o'clock the next morning, he's hanging on the cross for our sins. I praise the Lord that he was willing to do that. And again, I know the Lord is the one orchestrating the fact that Christ would come. He came to die for our sins, to be buried and to rise again. But to me, it's fascinating to see how the little human elements are all the way through Scripture to remind us that we have a responsibility to live a life like Mary of Bethany and not to live the life like a Judas.
Let's bow for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful.